Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning, podcast, and welcome to a new episode on the Pierre T. Lambert Show. Today, we have a special guest that you might have seen in some of the videos. His name is Jérôme Poirier. Jérôme is a half-French, half-Japanese travel and lifestyle photographer and content creator based in New York City. He's passionate about storytelling and goes the extra mile to get a unique perspective and create the most visually attractive imagery. He's worked with some of the leading brands around the world like Adobe, Affirm, and tourism boards from several destinations. Jérôme is someone I've always looked at for his really creative take on a lot of small either videos or content or how he was actually helping other, for example, influencers and photographers to get the shot. And that was something that really attracted me about his work. We've been in contact many times. We had photo challenges together in New York City. And I thought it would be a great place to bring him in on the podcast and to explore a little bit about your background, Jérôme, how you got into that world. And also, I feel like there is something that no one talks about here and it's not who David Beckham is, because apparently not everyone knows, but it is simply what is happening with sports, because you're such a big soccer football fan, and you've been working in that industry, and lately we haven't seen you there. So I'm super curious for diving into all that stories. And also, we'll talk a little bit about your crazy growth on Instagram lately, uh, not that it's a goal for everyone, but I think it can teach us a lot about trends and how they work and, and how we should grab opportunity when it comes. So, Jérôme, welcome to the podcast. I hope that was fairly accurate. <laughs> that was pretty accurate. Bonjour, bonjour. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your, what about sport? Like, how do you go from sport to photography and how, how does that bind together? It's interesting that you mentioned this, especially early in this podcast, because sports, it is in a way what defines me and what I live for. People on social media, obviously, because I post a lot of photography related stuff and travel related stuff, think that photography and travel is my biggest passion, but it's actually not. Sports is my biggest passion. And I specifically remember this summer, we were in Tanzania together. And I was just sitting down at breakfast, scrolling from my phone. And you told me every single time I look at your phone, it's football, 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 football all over the place. And it's true. My Instagram feed is filled with football. And it's, you know, I do have like regular photography stuff, but sports and particularly European football, not American football, but European football <laughs> is I love how you my put biggest it. passion. European football. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, you know, being a European person living in the United States, I need to specify that because it's always a challenge having to explain my friends the scale of what European football is around the world. But yeah, anyway. That's my biggest passion and that's what I live for. I used to work in sports. That's where I started my career and currently going through kind of like a dilemma between whether I want to stick with sports or whether I want to pursue this content creation photography because it's been doing pretty well since maybe a little less than a year ago. So yeah, I sort of like exploring the different possibilities. What was your job in sport? Were you like doing content for what, what exactly tell so, us? And I... Sorry, I'm just going to give a little context. When you're talking about the scale of, of football and soccer around the world, it's for me, it's like a thousand times bigger than American football can be or like a million times because it's, it reunites so many countries around the world versus American football is usually just the US. Here you have to imagine you have Europe, you have Africa, you have South America, you have like Asia. Yeah, There's so many people around football. So it's massive and even the European League leading clubs very famous around the world so yeah 100 i mean if you just look at the numbers 
comparing the viewerships on TV, for example, between the World Cup and, say, the Super Bowl or the World Series or like any other American sports, there isn't even a match. But yeah, no, I'm absolutely passionate about sports. And initially, you know, in the beginning of your career, when you're young, you are not certain about which path to take. I, in school, used to be much more of like a a science-driven person. So I was good in like math and science and life sciences. So when I went to university, I actually graduated in exercise and sports science, which usually when people get a degree like that, they tend to go into more like physiotherapy or like work directly with athletes in order to improve sports performance because it's a very science-related field. So, you know, it's studying the human body and how the human body reacts to a physical effort. And after graduating in that, I just told myself, you know what, for the rest of my career, like, I think it's a more viable option to go with a business-related field still within sports. So right after graduating, I actually got my first job in Singapore working in the National Stadium. It's called the Singapore Sports Hub, but it's a complex of different sporting venues. And I was basically doing marketing, marketing and sponsorship for the different events, gathering sponsors and speaking with different partners in order to organize events. And I pretty much stayed in that field for like a good three years in the beginning of my career. I worked in Singapore for a year, I moved to New York, worked for a sports marketing agency over here, doing sponsorship valuation. And then I worked for a little bit more than a year at Paris Saint-Germain, which is the football club from Paris, arguably one of the, the biggest in Europe, by far the biggest in France. But yeah, I was doing sponsorship. So, you know, my job was really different to what it is now in photography, like getting in touch with different sponsors and asking them whether they want to be official sponsors of Paris Saint-Germain, which I guess actually it's in a way in the job that we do nowadays, like getting in touch with different brands and pitching something and discussing about rates and discussing about how we could work together on a specific project, on a campaign. It has somewhat of a similarity, but again, a completely different field. And I was doing photography on the side just as a hobby and slowly started to pick up a little bit. And then I told myself, you know what, like, why not try this out and see whether it works? And I struggled a lot in the beginning, but with the trends of the past year and with the shifts of the interest of people and how they like to consume content on social media, I managed to you know, shift stuff a little bit and, and make this my full time for now. So yeah, I mean, again, I've been exploring a little bit the possibilities of what I can do on social media, what I can do with photography, and evaluating whether or not I want to pursue photography or I want to stick to sports. That's fascinating how you're actually changing from one to the other. And then again, where you're like, okay, I, I studied this science thing, this is cool. Do you ever miss the science part? Not really, in the sense that, I mean, I was good at it. I was a very uh, math-driven person. Like my grades in math were good. My grades in literature were not good. I don't think I really miss it in the sense that I was good at it, but then it's not something that I would like to do for the rest of my career in my life. Like it's not very fun in a way. Whereas like doing photography and like, you know, being able to share my work on social media, being able to do what I do now and travel the world and work with cool brands out there. That is something that is fun. It's fun to do. It's motivating. And I am to be stuck in an office or in a lab. I'm not sure whether I would enjoy that as much. It's an aspect we often overlook. We're like, oh, I miss science. And then you're like, well, I don't miss being stuck in an office or yeah, in, a, sure, in a lab the whole day. You, you are an engineer. So I don't know whether you have the same mindset regarding to that. Like if you're happy doing the oh, creation. I, I was the engineer that just wanted to be on the field. I was like... Yep, I'm going on uh, travel. No, I, we need to go see those people. <laughs> I need to go on that project. Sorry, I can't stay here. It's been three weeks in the office. I'm, it's too much. <laughs> That's also why I changed job, right? If it was great for me, I wouldn't have changed after five years. But I've seen you do workouts in Tanzania when everyone was very asleep. And you were like, okay, okay, I'm going to do my workout. So you're, you're, you're definitely living the sport lifestyle. You're not just like holding the beer which is a big difference for a lot of people. And what I noticed is that you're also very quick at coming up with things when you're shooting. And I mean, I followed you on Instagram. We've been friends for a while now. And lately you've had a 
very, very interesting growth around your photography or like the content you create. And I would love for you to explain a little bit what happened and what triggered that growth and how does it translate nowadays? What did it change and did it actually have an impact or not? Yeah, absolutely. So I started photography probably four years ago as I moved to New York City, like four or five years ago. And I kept doing photography because it was fun. I kept improving because, you know, I had this curiosity of like trying to improve my craft and also discover New York City. And, you know, it was a medium for me to to just like meet people, to discover the city and to do something other than just like relax and not do anything on the weekend. So I was having a lot of fun doing that. And I kept posting consistently on, on Instagram, not because of, you know, but just because I wanted to. But in terms of number, like I wouldn't really see any result. Not that I was directly looking for a result again, but, you know, uh, if you keep posting consistently and your craft is improving, but then you're not noticing any difference in numbers, then you might start asking yourself, like, am I doing something wrong? Or like, what's up? You know, you ask yourself some questions. And you're I like, wait, making... isn't Instagram supposed to be about photography? <laughs> <laughs> As in, uh, like, I was keeping up with the consistency and, and the good quality of work, but that wasn't translating into any specific opportunities, per se, simply because I feel like, and it's a bit sad to say this, but a lot of brands would look at numbers and that would almost be their priorities, especially if it's agencies, because agencies look at numbers and, you know, when they come back to their clients, they want to be able to say like, hey, we generated this kind of numbers and it converted this much, blah, blah. But I was doing photography for a good three, four years. And it was basically just me posting on social media without any opportunities per se. And then last year during the pandemic, a terrible year for everyone, but for me especially, I got my camera back stolen, $6,000 worth of camera gear, and I was basically left with nothing. But at that time of the year, Instagram launched Reels, which, you know, it's their competitive way to try to take down TikTok or to offer some sort of competition. And so I told myself, okay, Instagram just launched a new feature, might as well just like jump on it. So I was like repurposing my best performing TikToks and I was just uploading them on Reels. And at the same time, I was also creating new content specifically for Reels. So I would call my friends and say, hey, let's go out and shoot some Reels. Like I've got a couple of concepts that I want to do. And to my surprise, right off the bat, it started hitting good numbers and actually numbers that would convert. And I was surprised because it launched in August 2020. And I was about at 20-ish, 25K maybe at that time on Instagram. And by the end of the year, I was at 40K. I was like, okay, cool. That's pretty amazing. And just in a couple of months, I gained like 15, 20K. And then by January, it was at 50K. And then by March, it was at 70K. By May, I reached 100K. And now I'm at 150K. And so ever since Reels launched, and I jumped on the wave of that social media trend. I managed to completely change up my numbers on Instagram to maybe match up a little bit more the amount of work and effort that I'm putting in in photography and social media, which again, it's not all about the numbers, but it does help to put your work out there and to get recognized in a way by some brands. So to your question, what did it change? You know, again, it's not all about the numbers, but it does give you much more opportunities. And unfortunately, to the eyes of clients and agencies, people tend to look at you as, you know, someone who has better work, even if your work is exactly the same between 20K a year ago and 150K now, I can confidently say that I am making a proper living right now through social media, which would have been a little bit more complicated. And I say a little bit more complicated because it's not impossible if you have 20K to make a living out of photography, social media, but you know, your ways of reaching out to people would be a little bit different in terms of sponsors. Yes, you would probably need to do a little bit more of like a traditional type of photography work. But now that I have an outlet for social media, I feel like reaching out to people and getting noticed is a little bit easier. Charging a higher rate is also easier, obviously, because you know, people tend to forget that 150,000 people, it's one and a half times a big, big football stadium which is huge. Like when you think about like a, a stadium that's fully packed, that's like 70, 80, 100,000 people, 
and companies would pay a lot for that advertising space. But yeah, no, I mean, there is a difference between 20K and 150K. A lot of people keep saying that it's not all about the numbers. Yes, it's not, but it does help a lot. Yeah, it plays a role like ignoring it would be basically try to be blind. And it's like trying to close your eyes during with the sun hitting your eyes. You still see light come through, you know, whether or not you want. If I make the relationship with sports, when we would sell sponsorship packages to companies in order to become official sponsors of a sports team, one of the main drivers is the fact that we have eyeballs on the screen, whether it's inside the stadium or it's on TV. Like we would pull out specific stat from, from data measurement companies that would tell you how many viewership they have from different markets. And depending on the type of market that the company is trying to gain access to or, or to uh, have like a proper market share, to gain a market share or to target a specific audience, you know, we would change our pitch deck to those companies. So, I mean, numbers is numbers, you know, like if you have viewership, that's the reason why like sports is a big business. There's a lot of money in sports because there's viewership. As long as there's a fan base and people who watch the games, there's always going to be opportunities for brands to have their presence over there. Okay, there's like so many directions we can go here. But I, I want to talk about that parallel, because especially if some of us are listening and might be in that space, how do you find it? Because you worked on the sponsorships with those sports clubs. Do you feel that the creative space creator space, influencer space is valued properly when you compare it to the sports one. If you compare the eyeballs or like the type of people, like from your point of view, do you feel like it's being like sold like way too cheap or how, how does it feel to you? I think in the United States, it's been very valued, which is why there's a lot more people making a proper living out of doing social media, whether that be on YouTube, on Instagram or any other social media platforms. But outside of the United States, and I'm saying this because I'm comparing sort of like how companies are seeing social media and the opportunities in like Japan or in, in continental Europe. I do sometimes feel like the United States might be the only country, if not maybe the UK, where you can make a proper living on social media without having to have millions and millions of followers. Like when we think about The YouTubers in France, for example, we think about those people who are up on the list that have like at least a million. But, you know, immediately you think about the people like Cyprien, Norman, who are, you know, the, the behemoth of YouTube in France. And you tend to tell yourself, like, if you're not one of those, then you can't make a living out of social media. But in the United States, like there's not only you can make a living without having a huge following, but it, you just have like different categories of people that can make a living out of doing stuff online. So I do think that the influencer industry and the, the creator industry is getting valued in the US. It's catching up in other countries, but I'm not seeing the same speed, for example, in Japan, where companies would not have the same budget or would not have the same uh, vision in terms of what value someone online can provide. Yeah, and you have that lens because you're half Japanese, like I said at the beginning, and, and you do go back to Japan, you have a bunch of friends in that space too. So you kind of understand that landscape. It's, it's fascinating because we always see those, at least in Europe, you know, when the transfer players, you see like those crazy number, like this guy signed a deal and was transferred and got a sponsorship from Turkish airline or whatever, or a boss or whatever that brand of watch. And you see the numbers, it's usually in the five to 30 million dollars or like euros. And you're like, what are those numbers? It's insane, you know? So there is a sport aspect, but also the branding aspect is crazy behind it and, and the sponsorship. Actually, a good example is Cristiano Ronaldo, which you know arguably is the most famous uh, athlete in the world right now. An interesting stat is last year, he used to play for a team called Juventus in Italy. And his salary as a football player was something around like 30 million euros per year. But his revenue from endorsements on Instagram, only on Instagram, not other social media platform, was 36 million. So he would get paid more from endorsements on Instagram 
as opposed to his actual salary as a football player, which is incredible. I think a couple of years ago when he just reached 100 million or 200 million on Instagram, he was charging at least a couple of million euros per post. Obviously, you know, this number matches the number of followers that he has because he has like something like 30, 330 million on Instagram right now. All social media platform combined, he has more than 600 million, which is like double the population of the United States. And that's why when I was saying earlier that a lot of people don't understand the scale of what European football is, showing all of my friends this TikTok that I came across of the most followed people on social media, like everything combined. And so obviously you have a lot of the Selena Gomez and the Justin Bieber, some of the other athletes on the top of the list. But just to give you an example, Justin Bieber has something around 400 million followers across all the platforms. And the people who are like on third, fourth, fifth place, they're pretty close to that 400 million. But Ronaldo is number one with 600 million. So there isn't even a competition. A lot of people see Ronaldo as like the marketing machine that he is. It is kind of true, but that just... Yeah, he can retire from football, no problem. Yeah, for sure. That just shows you how, one, the scale of European football is huge, but two, also, you know, the scalability of social media and what you can do with a fan base is absolutely huge as well. Yeah, I think that's something we tend to forget. And that's where I feel like a lot of eyeballs go towards the sponsorships, but... Even if no matter what country you are, even if you have an audience of a thousand, five thousand, ten thousand people, even if it's a small audience, but you're very niche, you're very, and you have a business model behind it. And one of my guests was Sean Lee on, on the podcast. You guys, there's like links in the description. You can check it out. But he was saying how he actually built a automotive lights brand for like the, he had it for like seven years with a partner and stuff. They built all that their marketing channel was YouTube. They were putting out tutorials. They didn't care about how many views. They didn't care about subscribers, but the videos would be searched. They would be found through those medium. And then people wanted the light bulb to change the light bulb on their car because they watched a tutorial how to do it. Now you need the light bulb. Well, you purchase the light bulb from the guy who told you how to do it, you know? So no matter what kind of space you are, it's always a good reminder because people feel like, Sometimes I think it's like, I need to hit 200K to get there. But let's say you had 10K and you're really into the science of sport and everyone who follows you is really nerdy around that and you have some expertise, then you have just as much value as if you had 300K with an audience that's completely spread thin, you know, around the world. 100%, yeah. If your audience is really dedicated and they follow you for one specific reason, and you're known for, you know, an expertise in a certain field, then you have much more trust from those people. And if you can, for example, when you're pitching a brand, instead of focusing on, oh, I have like this many followers, if you can provide value and explain properly that your audience is very dedicated to your craft and what you speak about, it would bring value because of this and that reason, and it would convert because of how dedicated your audience is, then that is the added value. Instead of having like 100,000 followers that are just half interested in what you're doing, like it's better to have a very a smaller audience that knows you for what, what you are and the value that you provide. Absolutely. There is a good uh, blog post called A Thousand True Fans. It's more like a little essay. I highly encourage anyone to read it. It's, uh, it's basically a marketing 101 excerpt, if you want, because... It, it just highlights how important it is to have that that true fan base where it's not about how many, it's about like how deep in a way. And we all see it, you know, you go, I mean, you go to a soccer game and you see the true fans, they're burning the stadium down <laughs> because yeah. they lost, you know, yeah. not that you want those kinds of fans. I'm telling you right away, because if you mess up, <laughs> they'll come after you. But sure. uh, it shows that kind of the depth and the dedication of some people around it. So what is the psychology behind Reels? How did you think about it? And why do you think it, it worked beyond the fact that Instagram is pushing it out there? Obviously, what do you think like good Reels or good content on, on that space? Because I feel like it's getting shorter and shorter. What do you think is works? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, get, I do get a lot of questions from people asking me about how to improve their reels or like how to uh, 
I mean, a bunch of questions surrounding like just the process of creating a reel. And I think there's like several factors that goes into, you know, what makes a good reel or what makes a reel that has potential to reach a audience that's outside of yours. But I think the the one most important aspect that people tend to overlook is to be able to understand people's psychology. And what I mean by that is there's a specific consumer behavior on what type of content people like to consume on what type of social media platform or what type of device. And so if you wrap your head around how to tell a story in a short, concise way, because short, concise, because, you know, nowadays people's attention span is so short that people tend to like scroll through social media. And if in the first couple of seconds, it's not interesting, then they're going to scroll past. So understanding how to create a reel and tell your story in a very short, concise way, have a hook in the beginning and provide value throughout your reel, that's going to convert into a better performing reel or something that's a little bit more compelling. And when I mention provide value, it doesn't necessarily mean, it could mean a lot of stuff. It could mean like doing educational stuff so that people feel like, oh, I learned something from this reel. Let me check out the other work that he has. Or it might be entertainment. Some people do a lot of comedy and and stuff like that. You know, if you can make people laugh, if you can make people smile, there's a lot of people just doing like jokes and sketch comedies on TikTok, on Reels, on all those platforms. That's another added value. If you can inspire people to to do whatever, for example, like pick up a camera and start doing photography or inspire people to go to a specific location to shoot or inspire people to, you know, just give them like motivation in life or whatever it is, that's another added value. It's important to be able to like figure out what type of value you want to provide to your audience, but also translating that message that you want to send into the most compelling story of your reel. And it's interesting that I use the word story because it's only maybe like a 12 to 15 second video on social media. So can you really tell, talk about story? My answer, I think is yes, because throughout that 15 second you would proper think about how you introduce your reel in the first one or two seconds, how to have that hook, and then, you know, visually telling the story of the, the core of your reel. So, you know, say, for example, I've got this uh, photography tips series going on on my reels. How do I make sure that my audience keeps watching past the first few seconds? That I have like an intro saying like, photography tip part nine. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. So that first couple of seconds, people will be interested and keep watching. And then even visually afterwards, I need to make it as short, but with as much information as possible so that people would keep watching all the way to the end and potentially share it with their friends and say like, hey, look, I saw this interesting photography tip online. Let me share it with you or let me save it for later in case I want to do it as well or like replicate it. So yeah, it's not easy. But understanding what would perform well and what would be received as like valuable information is important. I think that is more important than what people would tell you about like using the trending sounds or like jumping on trends because there's a lot of people jumping on trends, but they're just plainly jumping on trends as in they're not bringing their own added craft to it and they they don't customize it. They just copy paste what everyone does. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm a photographer. Oh, this makeup trend is working. Let me, <laughs> let me do a make. What? I totally understand what you mean. The thing is, like, sometimes on social media, like, you can just like jump on trends and stay consistent and do what everyone else is doing, and you might get lucky. It might work because on social yeah. media, it sometimes it does have that random effect where you don't know exactly. It's not what's random. Happen, what's it's not the happen. algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, for me, my formula is if you don't bring your own sauce to it, then nobody's going to yes. proper buy-in or nobody's going to see you as like a, a different person or like a different branding. People are just going to be like, oh yeah, he's just another photographer that does everything the same way that everyone else does. And it's so interesting because in a way, it shows that we're trying to be the same as the thing that worked, yet we want to be seen as unique. But we don't really yeah. match our words with our actions, you know. It's like, yeah, no, but true. I'm unique, you look at me. But everything you put out is a copy, so. I think that's another debate. I feel like 
there, we're always talking about how much a craft, like regardless of how unique it is, yeah. how much of that was inspired, was partly inspired by something else. Everything. I've got this pause and say concept that I've been doing on my yeah. Instagram, which basically for the people listening, it's taking my phone, putting it on a mobile gimbal and putting that mobile gimbal on a tripod and extending that tripod high in the air and running around with that tripod, which makes the footage look very smooth and still. And it almost makes it look like a drone, which is a technique yeah. that I've been using in locations like New York City or Tokyo, where you can't use a drone. But I haven't seen anyone doing it the same way before I started doing. And yeah. also one of the reasons why like, I feel like this is my own craft is because like, there isn't that many people out there who can run full speed with a huge tripod <laughs> extended in the air. And so... Maybe I'm using my athleticism to its uh, full potential. I think that's one of the unique ideas that I came up with and that not many people are doing out there. But it was partly inspired by some of the work that I've done with like other people before. Like I didn't mm-hmm. like fully come up with it, even though I still think that I'm the only one or maybe one of the only ones doing that out there. So uniqueness, but an idea that was born out of brainstorming from previous content and from other stuff that I've seen before, but brainstorming from that and then bringing in a whole new idea. So again, how new is it? Yeah, It is new, but a mix of something else. It's always something that I don't think anyone should beat themselves up. I think copying is a great teacher. Yeah, And you can learn so much just from trying to do the same thing. And then you add your own little sauce because your experiences in life are really different from the other person. So you might think of a movie that no one thought about before where that you want to integrate into that specific thing that you're trying, you know? And that's where it's beautiful. And yeah, it's, there, there's no shame in my opinion. Now, if you're copying another artist, like literally someone was downloading my YouTube videos and reposting them on YouTube, yeah, that's no, it's not gonna work, you know. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's just called theft. It's not. Yeah, it's anymore, called plagia. It's that's yeah, plagia. Yeah. I don't know if you but remember I, I do but agree. when I was in I school, they, they would check that. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. There's like specific <laughs> platforms to see whether you've uh, written the same exact thing as someone else. But I, I do agree with you when you say that copying is a is a good teacher because I think we all start doing that when we start in photography, for example. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you're still getting to learn how to use the manual mode on your camera and you have no idea how to maneuver that device, you just start following tutorials and then you start looking at other people's work online. And then in my case, for example, when I was, I just moved to New York City and I wanted to learn photography, I would look on Instagram, the work of people that inspired me. And I'll be like, okay, cool. Let me go to that same exact location around the same time of the day, around sunset, for example, and try to take like the exact same photo and try to edit the exact same way. I wouldn't make it my own, but at least that would teach me how to edit a certain style, how to make a compelling mm-hmm. composition. And I told myself, if I saw that photo on Instagram and I told myself, oh, that's a cool photo, I want to do the same that's already given me some sort of a direction of what I'm interested in and what I like and what yeah. makes a visually attractive imagery. And mm-hmm. then once you start copying or replicating that thing and you learn that skill, then that's when you can translate that skill into something else that you come up with your own. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to jump. What is next in terms of platform for you? Have you... The how do you call that? The Instagram reel, I feel like they kind of changed a little bit. It's still being pushed, but I feel like it's they toned it down a little bit, or there's just a lot more volume, which is what they wanted, right? Which is what Maybe. Instagram. It's a little bit saturated, but it's interesting. I I do not know. I guess what's yeah. the next platform or what's the next uh, trend? It's you don't have your eyes to- on anything different right now. Not really, no. Well, I mean, you know, the rise of NFTs recently has been something that has definitely been catching uh, photographers' attention because, you know, it's another platform, if we can say it that way, that allows Mm -hmm. you to to have, for example, like a source of income or like, you know, to put your work out there and to be able to sell it to to collectors that would buy in your craft. Um, It's not a social media platform. 
So in terms of like, you know, having a, a presence out there, it's, it's certainly different. But it's difficult to say, like, what's the next platform? What's the next trend? It's important to, to be able to like keep up with the different movements and identify trends like as early as possible. I've yeah. seen the value a lot from people jumping on trends or people jumping on certain social media platforms early. It yeah. pays off. If you're one of the first ones in a specific field, you're going to have the advantage. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you on that, especially if you have time and you don't have a main platform yet. If there is a new feature, you should be 100% all in on that new feature and try to become the person to, to use yeah. it. Actually, when I think of that, I do have a couple of people in mind that were very good in the past couple of years in identifying trends or just like jumping on something new as mm -hmm. early as they see it. Sam Calder, I think, was one of them with his specific style of editing. When he, once he started mm -hmm. doing that, everyone started copying him. When FPV was just coming out, Sam Calder was one of the first ones to jump into that. Jacob is another person who I think is very good at being one of the first people to jump on stuff. Like Instagram, even on Instagram, he was one of the first people to be like a travel yeah. photographer. He was very early in the NFT game right now, and he's seems like he's doing well. Well, I, I don't know from the inside, but from the outside, it looks like he's doing well. And even locations, like when there's a new location that opens, like the vessel a couple of years ago in New York, he was one of the first ones to go there. I think there's a, a strong value in being the first one to be able to identify a new trend because you never know about a trend until yes. it becomes a, a trend and it's almost too late. <laughs> Yeah, it takes a lot of like observation and understanding a little bit how the yeah. market moves. And it's okay to experiment. Like Some of them won't work out, but when it does, it, I think it pays off big. Uh, you mentioned a few names clearly that made it good practice, I would say, to say the least. That also reminds me of another, I think, interview that I was listening from Sam Calder. And he was asked the question, if you were to do the same thing today, would you have done it the same way or would you have seen the same results? I can't remember, quote unquote, his words that he used, but he said something around the words of it would have been different or I would have done stuff differently. So yeah. it's situational depending on like, you know, the, the different trends that's going on in the era in a way. Again, Sam Calder, I think he was one of the people who was able to identify certain trends a couple of years ago and jumped on those and did his job like really well into crafting and, and you know, visually telling a story. Yeah, but I was wondering if sometimes they do try to identify or sometimes they're just interested and, and it just works out. You know, you know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, yeah. it's not necessarily like evil strategy behind it. Not evil, but you yeah. know, like the guy masterminding it. But I think if you were into RC cars or planes and you started to see the rise of FPV you are, and you were slightly into videography, you obviously would be one of the first. Now, are you one of the first to make it look good? That's a different story. But the, one of the first, like Johnny FPV and stuff, the first right. ones that yeah. were playing with those at the beginning, I remember those crazy videos, you know, with the trains and stuff. I think it takes a lot. And that's why sometimes, like, you don't have to force the process. If you're not interested, like, in something, it doesn't matter. Sam yeah. Calder is a good example of, he's just passionate about creating and, visuals basically yeah for sure I, I don't think when sam calder got into fpv i don't think it was necessarily because he identified that as a trend i think it was much more like he saw that as a new tool to be able to tell yeah. a story in a different way like to be able to visually create something that was different to the regular drones or like just to regular cinematography and he saw that as like oh cool it's like a it's just a cool device that i can use in order yes. to film stuff in a different way and not necessarily, oh, this is going to be the next trend. <laughs> but because yeah. he saw that as something that's different, that is usable in order to bring something different to his craft, he started using that. And then I think that that paid off. Yeah, for sure. And he defined a genre in a way, because when you're so early, you're the figure that everyone looks at uh, for yeah. it. I've been surprised I haven't seen him jump on any real stuff at all. I feel like it appeals not to everyone also, the very, very short form. Personally, I Maybe. Because he, he's known for a lot of like more cinematic stuff. Even though like I think he, he did upload like a, 
a reel of him doing like a double backflip off a mat of a ship and that got a few million views but i don't think he was <laughs> intending to try to create in i mean he just does like epic stuff and like for him he just needs to upload whatever stuff and people yeah. will love it but yeah it's true yeah they did the acro yoga video with when they were in mexico that got so many views it was insane yeah i think it, it was like, like 13 million, million to yeah it was like 13 million in two days. A little bit like one of your reel. One of your reel went crazy. Yeah, yeah, it did. I, I feel like when reels launch, first launched, though, like having, you know, I think they got 40 plus million views on that reel. I think that number was wow. way more impressive than if you get 40 million. I mean, if you get 40 million now, it's very impressive. But I do see a good number of people getting those kind of numbers, whereas in the beginning, I wouldn't mm -hmm. see anyone. Yeah, no, I did have myself as well, like a couple of reels that, you know, went viral with more than a couple million views or which explains the growth right yeah yeah absolutely if that one reel that got me 13 million views it converted into 20,000 followers in one go i had a couple of other like posts and say stuff that got like three million views or four million views and that combined with those two reels generated like 20 million new followers as well so the consistency in the numbers that I've been generating have been converting into into new numbers, which, you know, coming back to what we were discussing, like it did change my career, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen people who had life-changing experiences, whether it's with reels or NFTs. And I'll bring a few guests from that space soon. So for you guys to listen and explore a little bit that space. But again, it's almost like investing, you know, like you don't want to invest now that people made it, you want to look for the next thing that's going to come up and be prepared for the next one so you can play with that one with the reels. But if there is something called Beals next time, <laughs> <laughs> you want to be the first one on Beals and get that boost because the platform is trying to push a feature and so they will do anything possible to shove it up people's throat even if they don't want it. Especially <laughs> if there's competition. Especially Which if is there's the case with reels and, and TikTok and everything. I tried with IGTV, it just didn't, never worked. They, they were not yeah, able to I mean, push it as much. Instagram, Instagram has a history of like testing out different features and some of them succeeding, like Instagram yeah. stories or reels, for example, which were competitions to Snapchat and TikTok. But mm -hmm. they also do have the history of bringing in new features that completely didn't work. IGTV was one of them. Uh, yeah. I think the shopping feature on Instagram is one of them, even though from a business standpoint, like it does make sense to have a shopping feature on Instagram because, you know, a lot of people make purchasing decisions out of seeing stuff on social media more and more nowadays. And yeah. so offering that outlet for people who want to buy like new clothes or who want to buy prints or like whatever it is, it does make sense on Instagram. There's a market for that. Yeah, but it's funny. Then you see like YouTube trying to copy and trying to, or like copy or like trying to do their own version of the same thing and, and trying to push it so hard. I'm like, no, it's not, it's just not, it's just not going. <laughs> We're going to jump back towards the mm -hmm. sport field. I'm curious, do you feel like based on those different experiences, do you feel like you would be able to integrate your learnings in that photography and influencer space and integrate that into almost a new job you would create in that space for, let's say, a sports team or, or something? I wouldn't necessarily create a new job. If I am to go back into sports and continue doing social media and content creation, I think you know there's definitely a huge space for that because nowadays every single sports team is putting a lot of effort into having a proper digital division. And within the digital division, they have a social media team a lot of the teams out there have quite a number of people working just on social media because, you know, it's huge when you have a huge audience and you have different platforms and you have to have different people creating different type of content for those specific platforms that requires a lot of manpower and just like workforce in a way of number of people and, and, and people who are specified in different fields. So I don't think it would create like a new job, but I would definitely be able to transfer the skills that I learned from doing social media and building my own brand out there into doing social media and creating content in the sports field. Would you like to do so? Or would you feel like, oh, now I build my own. I don't, I don't want to build, build someone else. Well, sports is my biggest passion. So I would always go back into sports if I could. 
Now, the reason why I'm saying that I have a dilemma between like, you know, going back into sports and doing social media on my own is because when you work in a sports environment, you are working in a corporate environment. And so you are almost like stuck in that corporate ladder and that industry standard, whatever your position is, whether you're an intern, associate manager, a manager, a director, like you're always going to be pretty much stuck to that industry standard salary, for example. And whereas social media, for example, it's, it's way more scalable to the next level. And the reason why, like I'm saying that it's a dilemma is because Yes, to be able to make a living in life, it's important to have a comfortable salary, a certain set salary. But some of my friends are telling me, like, would you still go back into sports knowing that you can make so much more on social media? And the answer is yes, because if I am able to work for a big sports team, just like I was able to for Paris Saint-Germain, that has so much more of like a, a value for me in my life, whether that be like a sentimental value or a value of belonging to a group of belonging to like a family that's working towards something, being immersed in a world that you are absolutely passionate about. If I am to work for like a big team again, I absolutely would, regardless of whether or not like, you know, I can make so much more on social media. I, I wouldn't say like, I don't care about making a lot of money on social media because I mean, it is important to make a living. But sports provide, at least for people who are passionate, it provides something that's a little bit different in terms of the the sentimental value and the, the feeling of belonging somewhere. Yeah, and when it comes to making money, nothing replaces being happy anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It's like, exactly. yeah, go back to social media, but do something you, you're like half into or like maybe you're into it, but not fully. And now look at this passion of yours you've always had, you know, and like you'll make less yeah. money, but every single day you'll be like pumped and you don't need to be on Instagram to see the player. They'll be in front of your face, you know? Exactly. Like, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Like what I'm doing on social media right now, like I, I love it. I love the creative process. I love meeting people. I love being able to travel the world and see like beautiful destinations and have the honor to work with so many different huge brands out there. But I also did absolutely love being immersed in the football world when I was working in Paris and being in the stadium all the time, feeling like I was part of like a specific project, meeting the players as well, and just being in that environment. I, I absolutely loved it as well. So it's a good dilemma to have, <laughs> hesitating between two stuff that I love, one being sport and the other one being creating content on social media. How can you blend those with your own personal brand? I'm trying to figure that out as well. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people told me, why don't you do sports photography, for example? I'm not sure whether mixing sports and photography would be what no, I no, want no, to no, do not, specifically. Not, but... not sport photography, sports, social, media, photography, influencer stuff. Let's say you take a pole sensei and you run through the field in the middle of a game. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't risk the legal implication for that. Yeah, it'd be really hard to get through the field anyway. I am planning and hoping that I can go back to Paris within, you know, before May, for example, to go back to Paris. I'm still in touch with my former colleagues and hopefully I'll be able to uh, get pitch side access and to shoot more for fun, but amazing. I've done that once before. It's amazing being like pitch side and being like really on the field, looking at what are the possibilities in a way, just being on the field and telling yourself like, okay, cool. Like I've got access to this location that not many people have access to what can i do with this and just being in that creative mindset yeah because we're gonna brainstorm here a little bit guys but i think you also have the possibility just because of how media shifted to becoming a spokesperson for a certain field you don't have to be the PSG team or team digital social media person but suddenly you can also be the guy that reports those news just like all media would reports to their outlet, but you're able to report it through your own channels. And if you bring some uniqueness to that or something special, I think there is a massive amount of opportunities there, you know? Like you almost become the new commentators. But so I'm like, you can almost become that person for the social media world where or generation that might be consuming more through social media, instead of looking at the traditional just outlets, they'll be like, hey, I want to know from Jerome how that game was, or 
or what was there or what he created during that game and what happened. Yeah, for sure. There, there's actually a lot of uh, creators, influencers in the field of football or sports in general who actively get invited to big sporting events in order to document the experience from their perspective. And sometimes they do also get the opportunity to create content with the actual players as well. I think all of the teams out there, whether that be European football teams, but also here in the United States with basketball teams and American football teams, they're really putting effort into making that connection because sometimes the, the creators, the influencers, they might be the bridge to be able to bridge this gap between a certain audience and a sports team. So sports teams are definitely using that space in order to you know try to explore the different possibilities and whether or not they can bring in like a new fan base or like they can create different type of content to differentiate themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunities out there. I'm excited for you. I feel like you don't necessarily need to work for the one person or the one team. You can actually, especially now you have your own experience, you could almost build your own thing in that space and be that... Uh, Jerome's invited everywhere and it's with every player, you know. <laughs> oh no, we need to have Jerome because X, Y, Z reason, you know. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, I think it could be because then you're, you're still in the space. But at the end of the day, it's, it's interesting actually to talk to you when you're in that transition because then we can see what happens in the next five years and what you decided to go for and, and how it will move. Yeah, for sure. This would be like a good log. Maybe in five years, I'm going to listen again to this podcast and tell myself, wow, five years ago, I was at that space and I was thinking about that. Now stuff are completely different or now it's just, I'm still doing the same thing. Now you're a metaverse football player <laughs> in the metaverse. Well, have you thought about that a little bit? The virtual words in the metaverse or are you, are you someone who's like, I'm too grounded in the physical one? I don't know. I just generally I just take stuff as it goes, and I'm not trying to like think too much ahead. Um, it's important to be able to anticipate and like you know to plan in advance. But at the moment, I'm also trying to like focus on how I can improve my current situation in a way. <laughs> like whether that be working on my social media, working on my actual photography, or exploring different future or near future opportunities out there that may arise. Yeah, I see. I was. Uh... Imagining. I don't know if you've seen Ready Player One. I highly recommend you to watch that one. It's a little bit of a lens into the future in a way of how maybe the virtual world integrates in daily life with the real world and how people are making a living and a full life in a virtual space and then coming back to real life. And, and that is merged. You know, it's translated. You're not making a I don't know, FIFA coins. Suddenly your FIFA coins can be translated to US or whatever currency is being used in this physical world. So it's very interesting. Uh, I, I highly recommend that movie. It's, it's fun that, to watch. I, I mean, this is a little bit unrelated, but since you mentioned virtual stuff, did you know that there's virtual influencers? As in people on Instagram, for example, that are posting content. They're not real people. They're like, it's CGI and like just literally virtual people they're not real but they're posting content as if going around and posting like lifestyle stuff or stuff like that and they have like hundreds and thousands of followers they're not real people it's just cgi and virtual influencers and a couple of them some companies that manages those virtual influencers is trying to proper create a story around it and you know create like a relationship situation between two virtual influencers and people in the comments are just going crazy for that. They're like, oh my God, I didn't know this would happen, blah, blah. It's all, it's not real life. I've heard of it. I never looked into it. That's fascinating. I'll send you a couple of links. It's, it's fascinating how people are so engaged into the lives of not real people. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, there is one of the, I think it's Google's supercomputer AI. I can't remember, what is it called? Deep? I can't remember the name, but you can actually have it write articles for you. You just tell him what kind of topic and then it because it read the whole internet, it can like produce a whole piece or a speech or whatever, like completely. And that sounds like a human wrote it. It sounds good also. It, so I imagine your virtual influencer, now you plug it to that. And the machine is just creating stories and people are just like really into it. They're like, oh my God, look at what happened. You know, 
basically you imagine you have the that the machine learning program that read all the posts that were on social media and all the photos and then gathered the information which one got the most engagements and what were the keys, what was the, the wording, what was it about it, etc. And then they basically crunched that and posted only those those like so, I mean, it's so, almost scary. So, it, it's it's scary. almost scary. It's almost scary. If if you want something else that's right here now, can be scary. Is now when you edit podcasts, you can actually just see a transcript version, delete the words that I don't want. It deletes the audio automatically. So I'm like, oh, I don't want that word. So it deletes all the words in that transcript, and it automatically does that in the audio file. And if I want to replace the word with something else, if I train my voice. I can replace, I don't know if I said chicken and I wanted to say baby, I can replace the word chicken. I type baby instead and it's going to read baby in my voice. Oh my God, that is scary. Deep fakes, super scary. Yeah, deep fakes, I was, I was thinking about that. Deep fakes are very scary. That's, that's what scares me about having so much YouTube content out there and voice. Yeah. I'm like, you can create a replica of me, a virtual yeah. one and, and have it yeah, and post whatever almost. Hopefully no one listening to that is uh, creepy enough to go after me. So thank you guys for <laughs> for your love. Okay, we're going to not make it too creepy. But uh, yeah, it's something you think about. And I was hearing on a different podcast with Eric Schmidt, who is someone working at Google from almost the beginning, helping the company grow and, and doing a lot of, if I understand well, like technology strategy and, and development. And what they were saying is that they are able now to create conversations between dead figures because they have enough content about a dead person. For example, like let's say a famous writer or famous journalist who was asking questions like the program would ingest all that information and then would be able to replicate how he would speak, how he would ask questions. And you do that with two people and you create a dialogue between dead people basically. Wow, that's that's so scary. <laughs> Technology, man. Technology. Fascinating word. Jérôme, I want to be mindful with your time. I want to thank you a lot. So I have a few questions that we can part on. The first one is like, what gear has most impacted your maybe one year life, going back one year? And that is not too expensive. Was there a piece of gear that you really think about? And it can be in any domain, it doesn't have to be photography. Interesting. Well, I'm not sure whether there's one piece of gear that really changed everything. I do think my current A7 III body, which again, I know you said that something that's not too expensive, it's in the just under 2000. But I think, you know, switching to Sony, for example, we hear a lot of people mentioning about switching to Sony. For me, switching to Sony it did change up my gear, my content. Because I shoot a lot of stuff in low light, in blue hours, sunset, in the harsh light conditions. And Sony is known for their ISO performance and their low light capability, their dynamic range as well. Um, so yeah, if I am to name one piece of content that changed my work was having this Sony a7 III. And I'm, I was lucky enough to uh, have my hands on the a7 IV when you were here in New York. But I'm planning to switch to that one as well. Oh yeah, did you pre-order I didn't pre-order it yet, but I, I probably should. <laughs> you should yeah. because it's going to take a while. Yeah, I just don't know where I'm going to be when it comes out. Whether I'm going to be, I'm probably going to be in Japan. And then after that, I might be mm. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if it's like the SMS 3 it takes a while to ship. Because even the S3 is still backlogged. So, yeah, uh, we'll see. Okay, that's cool. And what would be the one piece of advice you would give for a parent with a kid trying to really get into that social media uh, slash photography creative space. It doesn't have to be photography, but what piece of advice would you give? It, you could try to give it to your own parents. Imagine if you were younger, you know. A couple of years ago, actually, I heard someone saying that they want to be an influencer. And I told myself, I think that's a bad mindset to have. Like, you don't want to be an influencer. You want to potentially be known for a specific craft or something like a skill set that you have. So, you know, if you want to be known for your photography work, then like focus on working on your photography work and then maybe potentially use social media as an outlet to put your work out there. 
But if you are a parent and your kid is interested in, in something that's related to social media, make sure to tell them to focus on that piece of craft to that piece of work. You know, if they're doing sketch comedy, then like focus on sketch comedy. Don't focus on trying to do something that's mediocre and trying to get visibility through social media. Work on your crafts. And if your craft is good, then people would see it and recognize it rather than focusing too much on numbers or on who's following you or on the feedback that you're getting. As long as you are focusing on the craft and you're improving your craft, then you're going to see the results. I think that's a great message. That's actually really good, yeah, because a lot of, we hear it, like YouTuber is job number one now for like teenagers or like TikTokers, maybe it changed now. It means nothing, you know, like you want to be a car light changing YouTuber or <laughs> do you want to be a sport guy or what exactly is it about, you know, do you want to throw balls at people, you know, it could be so many things. So great. Yeah, I love that one. I'm right. I'm pinning it down. Thank you so much, Jérôme. What do you want to send them over? I'm going to keep it simple. Instagram, my handle is at Jerome Traveler. Traveler with two L's because I created my account when I was living in the UK. So spelled the British way, Jerome Traveler. And yeah, I mean, I do have other um, platforms as well, but Instagram is my main outlet. So I'm just going to keep it simple. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jerome. Thanks to you, Pierre. It was a pleasure uh, being on this podcast and uh, having this very uh, deep conversation about social media, about photography, about other stuff that's surrounding the topic. Thank you. Bye. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email? It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top five. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.